Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This show is an encore presentation of the Faith Middleton Fuchmoos. Hope you enjoy this second helping. I got that sunshine in my pocket. Got that good soul in my feet. I feel that hot blood in my body when it drops. It's great to have you joining the party on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze, inviting you to eat, drink, and be merry with us. We're in our culinary studio at the Big G, Gateway Community College in downtown New Haven, five professional kitchens where they are teaching people for the food world tomorrow. We have a great show lined up for you, how to use a store-bought pre-made polenta log in the supermarket and cut it up to make baked polenta fries. We have recipes for the new hot trend in cool cocktails, low-alcohol versions that will easily carry you through a night of partying with friends. We have a wine here that is so rich and so terrific. It's from France, but it's available now in our area at a great price point. And this thing called the grill grate, you stick it on top of your own grill. It makes a difference in terms of flare-up, so nothing gets charred. Your vegetables aren't black, nor is your chicken skin. So we'll tell you about that. I'm with my incredible food buddies. We have Chris Brosberry, senior producer Robin Doyen Aiken. We have Mark Raymond, who's our wine guy and our other wine guy, and food, Alex Province, and his new job, since he spends half his time in Phoenix, Arizona, is to teach us about Southwestern cooking. Hey, everybody. Hey, hey everybody. Hey. Hey. Okay. Um, so, Alex, I want to talk with you. This isn't very Southwestern quail, or is it? It is. Absolutely. The quail migrate over Mexico. So a lot of hunters come. Hmm. So it's featured in a lot of Mexican cuisine. That's interesting. Yeah. Cool, and right? they probably treat it different ways. And so what, yeah. what did you and Matt do? You can find quail in the grocery store in the frozen section. So most we can store- here too, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. and that's where I found it here. It wasn't fresh, but we had watched this movie Agua para Chocolate, like water for chocolate. Mm. I, I've seen it two, yeah. three times. Yeah. It sounds yeah. better in Spanish. <laughs> Agua para chocolate. So there's a they make this delicious quail. So we made quail on the grill, and it's basically marinated for 12 hours in like orange juice olive oil, red wine vinegar, some garlic. And then we grilled it over charcoal and served it with mole sauce, actually, and picked it apart with her fingers and used street tacos and did avocado slices. That it, sounds it, it was amazing. Tacos. Wait a minute. It was Let, unbelievable. Let's rewind. I want to hear the various parts. So you buy the quail. Quails are tiny. So if you eat it at a fancy restaurant with a knife and fork, there's not a lot there to like <laughs> sort of eat. Chris. I remember the first time I was at Apricots. I must have been 18 years old or in, 19. In Farmington. In Farmington. I was on it and it was a date, unfortunately, for me. <laughs> and the quail comes to the table and we both are just sitting there trying to eat it with a knife and fork. <laughs> Like, and, and the it's leg impossible. meat, it's impossible. Did they, did they to... give you little tiny knives <laughs> no, and forks? I'm sure the wait staff was in the corner 
laughing hysterically. But, yeah. So, you know, so let's get to how are you supposed to eat, <laughs> yeah. eat with your fingers? Okay. okay. It's like yeah, picking so up a lamb chop. Yeah. Or, or like eating crab or something because there's yeah. all these little okay. pieces of meat everywhere. You take a bowl and you add lots of citrus like oranges, sliced garlic, red wine vinegar, olive oil, and you marinate it. And then I built, a, again, a mesquite fire and I put it over the indirect coals with slices of onion. I'd cooked it for about 10 to 15 minutes. And did you have and, the lid and, down? Yeah. Weber's or, or kettle grills are supposed to cook with the top on because yeah. it makes it cook like an oven more yes. than just scorching one side. You don't want to overcook a quail. It's supposed to be sort of pink. So 10 to 15 minutes was perfect. Oh, and you can wrap the quail in bacon if you wanted. You can do the onion slices right next to it, but I did it on a tray, and they sort of caramelize like a fajita onion. Mm. Mm. Nice. Then you, you don't throw that marinade away. You save it in a saucepan, and you bring it up to a boil so that it kills the germs. And then you baste the onions, and you baste the quail. So then we brought that to the table, and we did uh, the slices of onion, the quail, slices of avocado, some salsa, and we do the little street tacos, the flour street tacos, and mm-hmm. you just make a stack of those. So now you at could the do table, corn too if you've got gluten free people, oh, right? So now at the table, everyone gets their own quail. Now you can really get into it, and you pull like a little bit of meat off. You put it on your flour tortilla, and then you add a little avocado, and then this wow. the mole sauce. Have Have you guys? Main mole. Yeah, yeah. so mm-hmm. so let me pause here because mole sauce. I went to Mexico with a whole bunch of people that you know we're in this bull crowd with. So it was, and I will say this, um, not for the impressive quality, but to say so. It's Jacques Pepin and his wife Gloria, who's this amazing person, and a lot of other chefs, and so we're all there in a big crowd. And I'm searching around for mole because I don't understand it. So we find the ultimate place. And at the end, I still didn't understand it. So, Alex, I don't know if you do, but help me figure it out. You don't? (laughs) Well, so mole is really complicated sauce. And legend has it. There was a convent in Mexico and the archbishop was coming to visit. So they took everything they had in the kitchen and put it in a pot and sort of made a sauce out of it. (laughs) And then they served it on on a roasted turkey. So it has like nuts and bits of tortilla and roasted chilies and – yeah, fruit and raisins and mm-hmm. cumin spice, dozens and, and dozens of ingredients. Uh-huh. And chocolate. So, yeah, so, get to the good stuff. So yeah, right chocolate. there, that sounds fantastic to me. It almost sounds like the savory mm-hmm. version, the non-alcohol version of Amarone, right? So I love yeah. the idea of that. Did you make well, it from scratch or what did no. you do? Have you ever walked down the Mexican section of a grocery store and you see the jars of mole? It looks like a peanut butter jar. So yeah. I bought a jar and I brought it home and essentially it's a consistency of peanut butter. And you take one part of this mole, I use the whole jar, and then three parts of chicken stock. And you put it in a saucepan and, and it's like trying to dissolve peanut butter and you whisk it, whisk it, whisk it. And then you bring it to a simmer Try not to burn it. And it reduces to this like really thick, gorgeous, dark dark red, Mm -hmm. black sauce. And so you only need Mm. a drizzle. You take a spoon and you just drizzle it on the quail, on the tortilla, and you you just roll it. And it's this sensuous, uh, like complex, almost sweet. Oh, you add a little salt and a little um, sugar to it. So I did a little brown sugar. Mm. And then all of a sudden it has like a sweet note and a little chocolate. And it's really difficult to explain. That was one of the best Mexican dinners we've had. And it's not the typical, you know, melted cheese on, on mm-hmm. meat kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It was 
what a fun night. And we ate every bit of meat off every those quails. So, <laughs> wow. so we this ended up would, with just a pile. Wouldn't this be fun to try at home, do a barbecue around this, Chris? Yeah, but he said the right thing when you were saying a little is what you need. You can't I, take I, this and put it like a bunch of it on a piece of chicken or anything. Just yeah. a teeny right, you're little not bit. Smothering it. No, no, no I, it's I, more I, like a condiment than a sauce. I've always had it poured onto like enchiladas or something, and it's just too much. But in this case, just a drizzling, it was to die for. It's divine. It was so good. Can we do this here? Totally. Do mm. exactly like Alex did. Buy a pre-made one and doctor it up a little bit. Taste it if it's not to your liking. Where like he you said, a little. Where do you get a pre-made mole sauce? If you're in the Hartford area, it's really easy. Any of the bodegas, right? Go look for a, yeah. a Mexican store or a Spanish store and you'll see it pre-made in little jars. Like he said, in like little peanut butter jars. Okay. And mm. again, remember it's not a – I think that's the problem I think some people have with it. It's not a sauce. It's a condiment. So if you think of it as like mustard or uh, ketchup, ketchup or, or chili relish paste or, or relish, that's how much sriracha. you use. So the way Alex did it, was it's genius with a, a little drizzle. tortilla. So just a couple little drops uh, on top, right, okay. Alex, of your quail Good. with the sauce yeah. and, the, and whatever else you had on your taco and it's heaven. And we're wow. using um, that crema, that's Mexican sour cream. And yes, I bet you could find that, Chris, too. You no, know, yep. we definitely have that. Mm-hmm. In my supermarket, mm-hmm. we have it now because there is a growing – Spanish-Mexican population, Mm -hmm. and so you start to see all these things in the market, certain kinds of cheeses and sauces. Mm. So I see jars of crema. Uh, What is crema? You know how sour American sour cream, which I love, I can eat it by the scoop out of the refrigerator. (laughs) I mean... That's your Texas side. <laughs> yeah, no, I just love it. You do. But, but Mexican sour cream is a lot more sour. So yeah. it actually tastes like uh-huh. soured cream. I always and tell people it's like putting a lemon in sour cream, right? Squeeze yeah. a lemon inside in your sour cream and you get Mexican sour cream. Huh. It, so it it's kind a cross tastes... between sour cream and yogurt, it sounds like. Yeah, I think it's zingy. probably what sour cream used to be, tangy. maybe. It's and, tangy. And anyway, so. And it's more watery. It's thinner. So then again, you just, instead of it coming out gelatinously, it just yeah. sort of pours what, out and you just need a little. What kind of chocolate? Was the jarred sauce you bought, it, it already had the chocolate in it? Mm-hmm. Did, you didn't add extra? No, I tasted it before I cooked it and it's kind of grainy. It has, that's you know. That's the Mexican it's, chocolate. It's, that's the Mexican yeah. chocolate. You know mm-hmm. how you see these round discs mm-hmm. in in oh, yeah. certain uh, health food stores mm-hmm. and in Mexican markets? Mm-hmm. That's their chocolate, and it makes an extraordinary hot chocolate, by the way, because yeah. there's cinnamon built into mm-hmm. it. And that round disc of chocolate is incredibly grainy. In Italy, there are chocolate bars like this that are so grainy. And they're all artisanal, you know, handmade. It's interesting. Yeah, it's not emulsified like the Belgium and the French do, right? And Matt's parents, did they love it? Oh, my gosh. We sat outside. So in the desert, it gets cold at night. It's hot during the day. And then there's no clouds to keep the heat in. So at night, you just, you're covered with stars. All the heat dissipates out into the universe. And you're just sitting out under candlelight, eating with your fingers. And speaking of that chocolate, there's a brand with a Mexican grandmother on the picture, you know, in a little yellow package of hot chocolate. So we had the fire roaring even. And then you could do hot chocolate in mugs afterwards. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's great. Can I ask a question about the quail? 
I know I've had quail eggs for sure, but I don't mm-hmm. know that I've ever had actual quail meat. So to ask a question that everyone maybe is thinking, is it like chicken? It, it tastes like chicken. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Like a it's, really little chicken. I would say this about quail, that it has actually the way we all produce chicken these days in America and sometimes our chicken comes from China, but in any case, there is a ever so slight, you wouldn't be able to detect it, gaminess, and that's chicken. That's the chickenness of chicken uh, that you're going to taste in it. It is mm-hmm. beautiful, just beautiful. I always say it's like a cross between a duck and a chicken, flavor-wise, right? Oh, Not as strong it. and gamey as a duck, but definitely more so than our American chickens. Yeah. Well, thank you. That helps. Yeah. And it's juicy. Yeah, it's, it's very juicy. juicy. Mark here has an Italian wood-burning oven, and I'm thinking, Mark, doing little quail that you oh, yeah. get in the supermarket. Yep. Um, Roast them in the oven. Oh, oh no. yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. yeah. Crispy on the outside. Uh, so, very Alex, crispy. I loved your description of this. What did you drink with that? Pairing wines with Mexican food takes a little bit of a challenge because Hmm. the spice doesn't go well with really tannic wines. So spicy foods and like a Cabernet aren't necessarily great together. So we've been doing soft uh, like southern French wines or Italian wines that aren't tannic and uh, like an American Zinfandel would be perfect. That's what we were just thinking. Something that doesn't, you know, have that that tea bag over brewed Hmm. tea. A sensation. Wow. What okay. about a, and what I, about a California Zinfandel? Ooh, that would be perfect. Especially with that mole. Yeah. And guess oh. what? We're going to take a very short break. We've got stuff coming your way, including a book of recipes on low alcohol cocktails so that you can drink across the night and not get into trouble. And yet the flavor is delicious. More mouthwatering conversation and fun ahead on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. I hope you will make a charitable contribution to Feed the Hungry. They are many. We're online now at foodschmooze.org and we'll be right back. It's all you Tell me now that you got a whole enchilada. Now that you got a what you gonna do? What you gonna do? Are you gonna be any better than the man you had to be to get up? Oh, now that you got up. What you gonna do? What you gonna do? What you gonna do? Now that you got up. Oh, get your mind Wine. 
She makes a mark. Faith Middleton. You can sign up for our free podcast, meaning a free copy of the show, and it arrives in your inbox on whatever device you want. You just go to our site, sign up one time, and you're good to go. And you can listen on your schedule. That's what a podcast enables you to do. So it is Food Schmooze, S-C-H like school, M-O-O like the cow, Z-E, foodschmooze.org. That O-R-G is because we're a nonprofit. You know how this works. Okay. I'm with my treasured food buddies, Chris Brosberry, chef and co-owner of Metro Beast Restaurant in Simsbury, Connecticut, wine broker Alex Province, who this time is in our sister studio, KJZZ, in Phoenix, Arizona. We're seeing him on FaceTime. Hey, Alex. And hey also uh, Mark Raymond, who's another one of our wine and food guys here in Connecticut in the studio with me. We're going to get into the wine right now. And this is, you've heard of Cote de Rhone, maybe. It's from the Rhone region of France. And it's usually a red. Turns out they also make white wine. Well, white wine from that region of France, Cote de Rhone, is got this richness to it that is so, it makes it go with a lot of different foods. It's great to just pour in a glass and drink. You just say how interesting, how rich. So Mark has introduced us to this and we've got it on the website, foodschmooze.org. The maker, meaning the vineyard, putting this together is Augier. Looks like Ogier, O G I E R, Ogier, and it's the Ogier Cote de Rhone. It's um, a winery that was created 155 years ago. It is a blend of Grenache Blanc, Claret, Bourbon Blanc, Roussan, one of my favorite grapes. Marsan, Viognier, goodness, no wonder it's rich. That is amazing. And it's around $15 a bottle. Great it price. is, go, Mark. A simple, elegant white blend from let me, let me southern France, actually northern Rhone. I love all the different flavors that are going on here. You get pear. You get golden plum, and this wonderful sort of honey note mm. to it. And, you know, when you think about what we're eating these days, we're grilling seafood, we're having chicken, lobster pork. rolls, we're having chicken, we're having pork, we're having fried clams down mm. by the sea. Mm-hmm. This wine just pairs perfectly with it. You know, if I had a light pasta oh, with yeah. fresh tomatoes yes. and a little bit of grated Parmigiano Reggiano, I oh, would yeah. have this with it too. And Simple. I would love to just sit around with people. And, and just sip with it. nothing, yeah. and just sip this. Hi, you came over. Right now, Let's yeah. all have a glass. Really, really delicious. At fifteen dollars a bottle, this is a good find. It's now a we steal. T- you can hardly find a Cote Rhone white at fifteen dollars a bottle, because and then one of this be- quality. Is it because all of these grapes are mixed in, which adds a richness to the wine, and so a wine like this is going to be. 30, 40, 50, 60 dollars a bottle. Exactly. Yeah. So much smaller production than the reds. And that kind of complex wine with all the great varietals make it go so well with food. 
mm-hmm. right? Are you guys getting like the yeah. – it has like a mouth feel, so some on, texture to on it? On my yeah. tongue, going down my throat, beautiful feel. On my tongue, I'm getting – it's as if it's an orchestra and the high notes mm-hmm. are on the side of my tongue. Yeah. And then up above the roof of my mouth has this deeper, richer flavor. It's a wonderful wine to yeah. sit and drink. So we put it online with a picture of the label. And you can just read it at your wine store. They can't carry everything, but they'll have it for you within 24 hours. We tell you online exactly what to say on the phone, and that way they know how to look it up in the book. This is one I'd like to have a case of for the summer, right? Chris and Faith and Mark, you know how we we like our reds chilled in the summertime? Yeah. Yeah. So whites start off cold, but these complex whites, as they warm up, actually get more interesting. Yeah, we're mm-hmm. drinking it warm now. We, it starts yeah. to become more expressive in a very positive <laughs> yeah. way, yeah. not right. in a negative way. You know, with rosé, you want them wicked ice cold. With this, we open these at the start of the show. Time has gone on, mm-hmm. right. and it's now getting a little close to room temperature, and yeah. you're so right and on the mark And you taste so much more, that. right? And we yeah. always talk about how reds evolve in the glass. This is amazing. Tasting the wine when you first open it, mm-hmm. it's a little closed but yet still luscious and delicious and then just becomes more elegant and just more complex as you drink it. And at $15, yeah. you're not going to find very many wines that do that. Absolutely That's what I think not. anyway. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a price guy. By I always way, buy my wine by they, price. They age this wine. It's an amazing bargain for $15. Yeah, really so is. Yeah. Good find, Mark. Thank you. Okay. I love polenta. And it's almost like a tofu. Just takes the flavor of anything it's around. Whatever interesting thing you do. Meat juices. mm -hmm. And so polenta, cornmeal, that's it really. You mix in cheese and all that. Well, I'm going to talk to you about polenta fries. And you (laughs) We like it already. (laughs) That's my weak spot. You know that. (laughs) Because of the crispiness on the outside. Okay, here's what happens with these. So I was looking at bunches of magazines and I got to find cooking and they had a good recipe for polenta fries. Theirs were fried. If you want to see that, go Mm -hmm. to them because Mm -hmm. they inspired this. And then I thought, what if you want to bake them? It turns out you can bake them, Mm -hmm. and the best part is you can buy one of these. You know how you go into the store and you see a tube Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. polenta? I've never bought that. I've always seen it and wonder what people Uh, do with it. Let me tell you. (laughs) Well, they're they're not bad. No, I've never had one. I do, and I usually cut off circles of okay. them and then fry them uh, yeah. you okay. know just a yeah. touch of olive oil and get them a little crispy Very on cool. both sides and, and they're just, good no toasty. it's like having a potato or something yeah. it's like wonderful mm-hmm. and no work so here is the thing they're in a plastic wrap sometimes on the plain shelf don't mm-hmm. even need refrigeration in the supermarket so get that pre-made polenta log Cut it in half lengthwise. Okay. And then you cut it again and again, and then you've got, you know, you're going to make fries. You're going to make sticks out of it. Half inch, probably. You know, like old Mm -hmm. school French fries. You take a a baking sheet and you drizzle olive oil up around the bottom of the sheet. Beautiful. Then you take these polenta fries. And the oven, by the way, is preheated at 450, so it's high because we're going to crisp the outside. 
throw down these fries that you have cut into the olive oil, and with your fingers, you just toss them around so all the sides are coated. You put salt and pepper on the outside. Now, some people would be adventurous. That would be me. (laughs) So you would put some either spice, seasonings, the tar, that Middle Eastern stuff, smoked paprika, or also for me, grated Parmigiano-Reggiano. Oh, yeah. Okay. And you put them into the oven until they get golden brown. You maybe flip them once. You put them in a bowl, put them on the table, and I am promising you, people, they disappear like nobody's business. Better buy two logs. (laughs) Oh, man. They're just delicious. I I mean, it's essentially – yeah. You know, a, how about a juicy cheeseburger, but a little truffle oh. oil on the on the oh. on the toasted bun? Yeah, truffle Parmesan, and, plenty oh. of fries. A you little know, dab of the um, truffle butter, like mm. how Faith mm. likes to put the butter on your uh, burger. One you know? pat, yeah. yeah. One little pat. Yeah, as a flavoring That's a agent. great side dish to do for the summer, right? I like sure. it. Sure. Pop Easy. it in the oven, in and out, done. Yeah. Seems to take up less oil when it's baked than yeah. when it's fried. But yeah. if you're someone who doesn't care, then fry them, as fine cooking does, and we love them. So yeah. go for I, it. What I about like fried? But I just think that's a, it's so much extra work, and if you don't need to, the oven's so much easier. What I about definitely like go fish and chips. First. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh, yes. Oh right? wow. Like that's a healthy brilliant. Brilliant. Bake the fish right there alongside it. Perfect. Yeah. Oh, my God. And I try I a little that. vinegar even, yeah. a little malt vinegar on uh-huh. them. Mm. Healthy fish and chips. Yeah. So you know that Middle Eastern spice is a tar, mm-hmm. which has this. Sumac. Oh, yeah, sumac in it. It's, it's yummy. A little um, tart, right? Yeah, it's like yeah a little tart. Yeah, and and I would seeds. sprinkle that yeah. on. Oh, my gosh. There's just so many things you can do mm-hmm. with these fries. So that's how to make polenta fries, which go with just about everything that you're going to make on the grill or not on the grill. Some people don't grill. You know, we assume every year mm-hmm. there are people in apartments, you know, they don't have grills <laughs> yeah. out on the fire escape. or So we, we had don't a care hibachi you... on the stoop when we lived in New York. Well, I have one in the back of my car, actually. So can I tell you folks about something? There was this device that we spoke about on the show. And again, Fine Cooking had celebrated this device. I then called the company and had long talks with them. And it's a grill that you sit on top of your barbecue grill. Yes, I remember. So it has these long channels with holes in the bottom. And the raised rails, they look like railroad tracks. They clip together to fit the size of your grill. They get really hot. So you're going to get all the sear marks and everything. But because in the lower channel of the railroad track bed, they have holes what does that prevent? It lets the heat come up, but it doesn't oh, no. let yeah. the flaming burn your mm. item. That your chicken, your duck, all those flare-ups. <laughs> oh, I hate it, this that. Is what it, so I went online yesterday yeah. to re-re-re-research this and think, is this still working? And oh, my goodness, Everyone's so many raving. endorsements. They clip right onto your grill grates. They clip together, boom, 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 boom. So they fit your, the size of your grill. You can mm. even do them in your oven. Get them online? Yeah, grillgrate.com. That's too easy. <laughs> G-R-A-T-E, real great. 
com. Depending on the size, yeah. it goes from $39 all the way up to, if you've got a giant, giant, giant grate, it would go to $119. And with me and vegetables, it's so easily, or with me and duck, which is one of my favorite proteins, honestly, I can burn something so quickly. So, and it can happen with bread, a million things because toast, the yeah. fat is causing the flare. Would they this fit the round cool kettle thing. kind? Yes, I'm on their website you, it now. Does, Alex. You shop by type of grill. Yeah. So okay. if you have a kettle grill, kettle you grill. hit that. If you have a regular yeah. gas grill or a pellet grill, yeah, it's it fits cool. all of them. The little holes allow for a little flare-up. Enough to give it flavor. Enough to give it caramelization without black, which is not healthy for us actually. So We were talking about how it's the little droplets that go down and then they sort of vaporize and then – circle around and land on your food. Remember you were teaching us that's where the, the flavor comes from when you grill? Mm-hmm. So those holes would do the same thing, right? Yeah, so exactly. you're still getting all the flavor. Yep. The exactly. holes are big enough to where you, the juices will go through and then the little wisps of smoke will come back up. Okay. Here we go. Alex, in the southwest in Arizona, do they make wine? Yes. Or is it too hot? No? No. Someone gave us a bottle of a local winery that's um, near Sedona and Flagstaff, so where it's cooler up there. And I haven't opened it yet. So I think they're making wine everywhere. I think all 50 states make wine now. Wow. I I don't know if it's all drinkable. (laughs) But all 50 states make wine. (laughs) Will you report in when you know? I I love an assignment like this, (laughs) right? (laughs) (laughs) Because every place has a terroir, a climate. The game is that the winemaker knows how to take the best grape for that region's climate to bring out the best wine. That's the game instead of imposing your taste yes. on the climate. And so we'll see who's who's doing that in your region, Alex, in Arizona. You know, when people sort of poo-poo wines from different places, I always think to myself, maybe 100 years from now or 200 years from now, we'll look back and, and kind of like Napa and be like, why wouldn't you have planted grapes there? I mean, now it's a world-renowned area. Give these places a chance. I, I, yeah, I but so many winemakers in our whole greater region, many states oh, around yeah. us, will impose a preferable taste on a place. They'll say, but I want to make Burgundy or mm-hmm. Pinot Noir yeah. or I want to make Riesling or – well, the climate and the, the air doesn't like that. It's not going to work so right. for you. But if you go with Cabernet Franc or something else, and, the area, the soil, the climate just says, oh, yeah, yeah, this is for me and you have this beautiful wine. So No matter how hard these people try to fight, you know, planting something that doesn't want to be there, eventually you always hear these stories. They, you know, rip them out and put something else that, mm-hmm. that does grow there. There's yeah. no no winning with Mother Nature, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Eventually yeah. they are, come to that conclusion. Are there tequila makers where you are in Arizona? So I think all the tequila is coming from Mexico, but that's a huge – you look around. Everyone loves tequila here. And I wonder if you could grow. You, yeah, I, I mean you you're not that agave far, in, right? Well, so, in Arizona. I, I have agave in my yard actually. Yeah. So you, you could know, make your they, own tequila. Really? So the agave, yeah. you know, they, yeah. they mm. chop off the leaves and then they slow roast it. All yeah, the sugars yeah, yeah. come out and then they um, ferment wow, it. I know. But I always think of my Spanish ancestors needing brandy, being here and being like, what can we make alcohol out of? What are, what are those things over there? 
<laughs> and like well, roasting them and fermenting them and making like, you this believe? Is pretty good. Oh my, what fun you would have. And then trying, maybe you could do a mezcal because <laughs> you're into smoking. Because my landscape. It would be so fantastic. <laughs> there goes your landscaping. Exactly. What Alex and Matt drank it all? <laughs> You're bound to get at least one bottle. Okay. <laughs> That's a rock. You can't do anything with that. <laughs> oh, funny. Oh, wow. It's so great to be with everybody. Thank you so much. You as our listener having a seat at the table means the world to us. And... Us being together, too, is such a delicious thing. So, you know us. We love the local. Please support your local food growers and food makers. You can get the podcast, Delivery of the Food Schmooze, every week. And we've got, of course, all our food, wine, and cocktail, restaurants, hot topics, anything online at foodschmooze.org. And we have low-alcohol cocktails coming your way so that you can sip across an entire evening and not get sick or do anything. (laughs) Stay with us. Middleton, this is the Food Schmooze Party offering the richness of life and coming to you in Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and New York, New York including Westchester County, the east end of Long Island, the Hamptons, of course. Senior producer is Robin Dorian Aiken, and to hear this show on Connecticut Public Radio, it airs Thursdays at 3 and 9, and then Saturdays at noon. Podcasts and our curated recommendations are always online at foodschmooze.org. Here is something that we have all been waiting for. One of the trends that we follow on the show and like features sessions cocktails. That means cocktails that are lower in alcohol. So you can have a few at a party and not need a nap or a doctor. (laughs) Um, Many people are going in this direction, especially for a night of drinking with friends whether it's a party or even, you know, you sitting watching a movie, anything. So we have this book of 50 inventive recipes for low-proof cocktails. They highlight flavor and more responsible drinking. 
Even beer now is slapping this label that says session on the cans and the bottles. Each cocktail you're going to hear about, no matter what spirit, contains no more than three quarters of an ounce of that strong spirit, including whiskey, gin, tequila, rum, and so on. Bartenders we talk with on the show, including our bartender guy, Anthony Desario, they're having fun building these kinds of cocktails from scratch. So if you go into a bar and you say, I want a session cocktail, alcohol low by volume, they know what you're talking about, and they'll whip it up. It's very artisanal, very handcrafted. So we have Drew Laser. He's a contributor to Punch, the online magazine about spirits, beer, wine, and cocktails. And he is author of this book, Session Cocktails. Welcome to the Food Schmooze Party. Thanks so much for having me, Faith. Oh, it's great to have you. So here's the thing. I wanted to start with one particular cocktail because it's a favorite of mine. I just the second said, wait a minute, who did this cocktail? <laughs> and it's one of my cocktail heroes, Dale DeGroff. Tell us about this watermelon cooler. I love watermelon in so many kinds of cocktails. Yes, Dale DeGroff, uh, King Cocktail, as he's known, who's a proper legend, of course. He put this together. Uh, it's a riff on a cooler, which is a bit of an esoteric style of drink nowadays, but it's nothing too complicated. It's just Sauvignon Blanc wine, fresh watermelon juice, an elderflower liqueur like Saint-Germain, and then just a little sweetener. Basically put all that together, garnish it with a little cucumber, and it's something you can do in a big batch, total crowd pleaser. It's very aesthetically pleasing. It basically looks like the visual representation of summer in a glass because it it's so awesome. colorful and, and so fun to look at. And luckily, it's also very fun to drink. I like the idea. We have told our spirits guy, Anthony Desario, to do lots of drinks with either vegetables as a base or fruit as a base, not too crazy with the amount of alcohol. And they have been some of our most popular drinks. So I really think you're onto something here. And thank you also for letting us put this recipe, this watermelon cooler on our website. So thank you. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's one of the easiest access points to the book. That's one thing I think is really neat about session cocktails in that if you kind of want to geek out and get super home bartendery with it, there are particular recipes that call for some interesting liqueurs and spirits and things of that nature. But at the same time, there's also extremely easy-to-execute recipes like the watermelon cooler that mm-hmm. I think anyone could do without having to you know, make a trip to a specialty liquor store or anything like that. So it's definitely... A, Excellent introduction. Yeah. Drew, as we go on to one called Frosé, where you do a frozen rosé, before we get to that one, which is also on our website, how did you get on to, I mean, I know you write for Punch and Sever and a whole bunch of other publications, this idea of these session cocktails. Where does the word session come from? As far as I can tell, it comes from the UK in reference to session ales. Uh, a lot of the cask ales over there are lower in alcohol than some of the big hop bomb 10 plus percent uh, style beers that we mm-hmm. like in the American craft uh, sphere. Sessionability has kind of been a word that's been thrown around for quite a while, but the idea of drinking lower alcohol cocktails is definitely nothing new. It's just now we have a bit of terminology to use to reference them. But uh, even though 
session cocktails does seem like something that's contemporary. It's actually very old. For a while there in the 1800s, the most popular cocktail in America was the sherry cobbler, which is nothing more than just sherry and crushed ice, a little sweetener, and then uh, some fruit and, mm-hmm. and garnishes to make it look nice. And that was the drink. Let's talk about the culture of a bar in some parts of the world. The culture of the pubs in England isn't that you would go in and, you know, have three drinks, high alcohol, and everybody's bombed. That's, that's not really how it goes. This is a night out in your community with people you know, sipping beers or whatever you're having, let's say, in these pubs, maybe a little bit of food. And everybody is talking. They're sitting around talking. Now, there are some youngsters who go out and have what's called a soaker. And the soaker is – you're laughing, Drew. The soaker is they want to put food in their stomachs early in the evening so that they can drink like crazy and be okay. But really, basically, people from a community want to gather in a place, and it's the local pub. So this is really what this book is getting at, hanging out with people, having a whole evening and having it not catch up with you too soon where you're maybe making a fool of yourself. Or the the (laughs) next morning. (laughs) Feeling bad. Yeah, but but it's all very pleasant. The whole thing feels very pleasant. Okay, let's go to Frosé. Chris, were you going to say something? We need this because Mark was even saying he went out and had a cocktail with a friend. It was a gin and tonic, right? And what did they do? They did three quarters gin and then put a splash (laughs) of tonic on top. And I looked at the bartender like – uh, I'm not 25. I'm, I'm not driving home, I guess. I mean, I just, I mean, I don't think I've ever had a bigger glass of gin ever. Wow. That's but that's, I like, the, yeah, I like, you know. I like this kind of cocktail better. Yeah, right? sure. The and if you're not ordering wine after because you've had too much to drink already, right? Right. A big right. cocktail like that. Okay, the book is called Session Cocktails, which really stands for, you'll see this label on things now, low alcohol drinks for any occasion and for an evening of spending time with friends or even if you're by yourself and you're watching a movie, this is really the way to go. So this one's called Frosé. We've been into this for a long time. It is where you have a kind of frozen drink featuring rosé wine. So we have not too much rosé wine, a little pomplemousse, some lemon juice, some crushed ice, and if you want, a little touch of Campari. I love Frosé because everyone loves Rosé. I personally think you can drink it year-round, but that's, that's, a, that's another topic. We do, too, because uh, <laughs> it's dry. We need to start thinking about using wine, not fortified wines like cherries and vermouth, but just traditional wines, which are only usually 11 to 14 or so percent alcohol, as the base, quote-unquote, spirit for a drink. And for this... I really like it because in addition to getting that great rosé flavor, there's a couple adjuncts, like you mentioned, the Gaffard Pamplemousse liqueur, mm-hmm. um, which is only about 16% alcohol, and then the optional Campari, which is less than 30%. Really, really big flavor ingredients. But you're adding them in such a way that it's not going to overpower the characteristics of the rosé. It's only going to enhance them. When you combine the popularity of rosé and the, you know, how great frozen drinks are, Rosé is just the ultimate summer 
cool-off drink. And it's, it's easy to make, and it's, again, great to batch for a group. So yeah. A pool party or an outdoor party, a garden party, something like that. So, it just works, and people love it. Mark Raymond. I see a lot of uh, bars now, restaurants, having these uh, frosé machines where they batch the cocktail up ahead of time. And uh, you just go over, and it you're like going to Dairy Queen. You're just you know filling up a glass, putting a nice you know Crushed garnish ice. on the glass, and uh, they serve it to you. It's just mm. absolutely delicious. I love it. There are people I run into, and this has nothing to do with age, but this idea of when they hear, for instance, that an artisanal beer is super high in alcohol, they're very excited, and they say, "Oh yeah, this is a." bomb of of a beer and and you know they're into that and then i think well this is so interesting because now as a counter reaction we have people who are interested in what drew laser is doing in association with punch magazine doing this session cocktails low alcohol by volume and i just wonder is there a crowd that's winning or is this just different taste? Is this a trend that's going to disappear? What does everybody think is going on here? In America, we've kind of been conditioned to associate the value of a drink with its strength, Hmm. uh, which to understand why that happened, I think we would probably have to have an advanced degree in American studies or something. But for whatever reason, we always think, oh, this drink is not strong enough. I'm not getting my money's worth. Whereas in places like France and Italy, they don't necessarily think of things that way. So if, if there's any inspiration I take from kind of the philosophy behind it, it's uh, the idea of the aperitif, uh, which is, of course, is huge in Europe. You're still having a great time and still spending time with loved ones, as you mentioned, Faith. But you're not going to have to go home after two drinks in half an hour because they're just simply too strong. Mm-hmm. I think that in America, especially with craft beer, it, it just became kind of a, a game of one-upsmanship after a while. Brewers were trying to do bigger stunt beers and higher alcohol beers and bigger flavor and everything like that. More and hops, yeah. The hoppiest, most intense beers imaginable. And after a while, I think you hit a critical mass where people look at that and they say, you know what, I don't know if I necessarily want a 17% IPA. I, right. I think I want to go the opposite direction and just have right. something that's Tastes easy good. to drink and I can enjoy uh, yeah. multiple rounds up with friends without uh, it kind of affecting the rest of my evening. And I think that's a universal thing to want to be on the level, but still yeah. have a drink in your hand. You know, Drew, it also speaks to the idea that if you are making, let's say you're making a dessert and you decide people like sweet things, I think I'll put two pounds of sugar in here. <laughs> it blocks out the other flavors right. in the baked good you're making. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, yes, it's yeah. a sugar bomb, but it, you know, it's like, hmm. Yeah. So we're you're getting just... toward the end of the show. But does anybody want to comment on that? The, the drinks are sometimes yeah. out of balance. Getting back to the culture of going out in the afternoons, there was a time where especially down in Manhattan, the big guys in Wall Street, you know, they, and, and I'm generalizing. And Say, I, don't mean I want to a do big that. red. I that, want a big red. <laughs> I want a big red or I want my martini or I want my Manhattan big martini. while I'm having my lunch. You get to a point where it's like, okay, I just can't do that every day. Mm. And so you really want to enjoy in some great cocktails how they can complement a meal or just yeah. refresh your day. Yeah. For us, a cocktail in the afternoon at like 5 o'clock is a ritual. So – 
it's fun to actually have the glass in your hand and be out watching the sunset. So it's not for us necessarily just the alcohol of trying to get a buzz. It's more about just the, the ritual. And so when we had like Matt's mom with us, it's fun to make a drink for everyone, even for people who aren't big drinkers who can enjoy that moment with us, you know, feel like they're having a cocktail, but without then passing out you know, from a big martini or yeah. not yeah. enjoying dinner after or being able to have a glass or yeah. two or one with dinner. The French are right. Too much alcohol before a meal can wreck your palate and then you're not yeah. tasting the beauty of the meal. Very quickly, we have this recipe on our site also. Foodschmooze.org, Pim's Cup. This is a classic and it, it involves strawberries and cucumber and simple syrup, which is sugar and water. Pim's number one liqueur, you've seen this probably in a million stores, lime juice, lemon juice, and a splash of soda water. Go ahead. The Pim's cup is to Wimbledon what the mint julep is to the Kentucky Derby here mm. in the States. It's just a, it's a classic drink, but the big difference is that you can have a few Pim's cups, whereas I think you can have a few uh, less mint and juleps. The Pim's liqueur, it's only about 25% alcohol. It's a gin-based liqueur. And then, yeah, you're just combining that with cucumber and fresh fruit and a little sweetener and a little citrus. Top it with soda, and it's, it's very, very refreshing. There's a million different variations on it, but the one we have in the book comes from uh, Dan Greenbaum, who's an amazing yeah. bartender at Diamond Reef in Brooklyn. He kind of just modernized it and tweaked it ever so slightly to uh-huh. make it a little bit more contemporary, yeah. but all the flavors are still there, and it's the classic summer refresher, and it's something that I think fits the Session Cocktails mold very well. Yeah. I like this because you get to taste these beautiful flavors over and over and over again across an evening. It's pub culture. Okay, it's really great. Drew, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, Drew Laser and the editors of Punch Online created this book of low-proof alcohol drinks called Session Cocktails. We're on Connecticut Public Radio Thursdays at 3 and 9 and Saturdays at noon weekdays. Listen for my 60-second food schmoozes and never eat more than you can lift. In New Haven, I'm Faith Middleton. Hey, don't want the party to end? Well, neither do we. Talk with us anytime online at foodschmooze.org.